Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we engineer weird and wonderful science irradiated directly into your memes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Dr. Kate Brandis talks about tales told by feathers and quills. First up, here's news of huge radioactive explosions in Russia. Thursday, the 8th of August 2019, this happened in Russia. That is the sound from an eyewitness video on YouTube of a large explosion at the Nonoska missile test site in the Arkhangelsk region. And either a 2 times, 10 times, or 20 times temporary increase in radiation levels in the nearby Russian city of Severodvinsk, depending on who you believe. Severodvinsk is just 40 kilometres or 25 miles away from the military base. The explosion knocked several people off the floating military platform into the White Sea. It's reported that three people were killed straight away, while possibly another two people died of radiation burns. Six people were taken to Moscow Hospital, suffering from severe radiation burns. I'll embed the video of the explosion on the Diffusion show notes page. The Russian state nuclear agency Rosatom say it was testing a new kind of intercontinental ballistic cruise missile that would be launched with rockets and then a small nuclear reactor would power a ramjet, which sucks in air, heating it, and the expelled heated air goes out the back, to allow the missile to travel for as far and as long as Russia likes. In 2018, Vladimir Putin released a statement that such nuclear-powered missiles could travel around the world several times, and take unexpected paths, such as travelling to the USA through Mexican airspace, making conventional anti-missile defences, as they're currently deployed, redundant. At the time, he also spoke of extremely fast underwater drones that make submarines obsolete. The world first heard of the incident through people in Severodvinsk, who uploaded videos of the explosion on social media. The people of Severodvinsk bought all the iodine in the city's pharmacies, hoping to prevent radioactive iodine from accumulating in their thyroid glands. Photos of the injured survivors were posted on Twitter, being carried by people in hazmat chemical protection suits. Russian news agencies report that the missile's rocket fuel caught fire on the offshore launch platform and then exploded. The agency also reports that the clothing of the people killed and injured by the blast have been burned. That would seem to only be appropriate if they were biologically contaminated and the last thing you would want from radioactively contaminated clothing. 
as radioactive smoke would spread the problem. Reports say that the people in the nearby village of Kamensk were in the process of being evacuated from a different explosion from earlier in the week, when Thursday's blast happened. Around 11,000 people have been evacuated from the Achinsk areas, according to the Russian news agency TASS. The explosion was also detected by seismic and infrasound monitors used by the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organisation in Austria. That's all we know for now. There's no doubt a lot that's still being kept secret. The Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty between the US and Russia was allowed to lapse on the 2nd of August 2019, just a few weeks ago. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Every feather tells a story. Dr. Kate Brandis is a research fellow in the Centre for Ecosystem Science at the University of New South Wales. I began by asking Kate, how do you study water birds in wetlands? That's a really good question because water birds are so mobile, they can travel wherever they like. So knowing where they're going to be when is really hard, particularly at the moment when we're in a drought and there's not a lot of water around. So normally what would happen is we'd have a wet year with a lot of rain and some big floods and the water birds come mainly, my study area is mainly the big floodplain wetlands in the Murray-Darling Basin. So these are wetlands that are dry most of the time and only fill up when the rains come. And when they do fill up, then the birds also come. And that's when I get to do my field work. So how can you work out which birds are where and where they'll be again? So the big wetland systems that we regularly study have a known suite of species. So they, they support birds that we call colonially breeding water birds. So these are birds that come together in flocks of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of birds to breed. Um, and we have a set of wetlands in the Murray-Darling Basin that regularly support these types of birds. So that includes straw-necked ibis, Australian white ibis, royal spoonbills, things like that. And so how do you tell where they've moved to? Are you just looking at the populations of the same types of birds? So normally I do a couple of different things. When we do get a breeding event, which is not very often, so the last one we had was 2016, I monitor reproductive success. So how successful are they at raising their chicks? But what we also want to know is where do they go when they leave the breeding site? Because they don't hang around. Once the water dries up, they leave. Um, but also where they've come from. So traditionally, tracking methods would involve either banding, which is putting a small band around the um, legs of the bird. But that requires somebody to either find the bird dead and report it, or to see it again and be able to read the number on the band and report it. So the reporting for banded birds is very low, particularly for these types of species. 
The other way that tracking is normally done is using GPS trackers, which get attached to the bird either on their back via a backpack or sometimes implanted into the bird. Very invasive um, and expensive, and you end up with fairly low sample sizes. But I've been working on a new way of tracking water birds, which uses their feathers. So what we do is we collect molted feathers off birds. So we don't have to catch the birds, we don't have to interfere with the birds in any way. We collect feathers and then we analyse them using two different techniques. One is stable isotope analysis, which we can look at their diet using that sort of information, and also elemental data. And all this information is incorporated into the feather as it grows through what the bird ingests, so it's what it drinks and what it eats. And what we found is that different locations across Australia are unique in their diets and their waters, and that gets incorporated into the feather, and we can work out where that bird grew the feather. That's amazing. So that's, that's like almost you know, like mobile tree rings. <laughs> it is a bit. Feathers are made of keratin, which is the same stuff as your hair and nails. And it's fantastic because once it's grown, it doesn't change. It's chemically inert. So it's like a, it is, it's like a tree ring or it's a log, I guess, of the diet that the bird's been eating. And we can access that using some really whiz-bang technology. How long a record does each feather keep at most? With feathers in particular, birds molt their feathers maybe every 12 months, 18 months, depending on the bird and which type of feather it is. So it's information possibly from a year ago, but it's also only information while the feather grew. So it's not a year's worth of data. So it's maybe a week to 10 days, depends on how long it took the bird to grow that feather. And then once the feather's grown and it grows before it emerges from the bird, it's just that snapshot of where it grew the feather. So maybe only a week of, week of dietary information. But it doesn't really matter to us how long that is. It's, it's where it grew it that is important to us. Mm. And so what are you finding from the feathers? So a couple of years ago, I ran a national citizen science project called the Feather Map of Australia. And we had enormous response from people. We had over 500 wetlands represented with feathers and we've been analysing that information. And what we've found is that birds travel huge distances. We've got pelicans that were found in WA, pelican feathers that were found in WA that were grown in the Murray-Darling Basin or the southeast coast of Australia and vice versa. They go the other way as well. So pelicans we know are travelling really large distances. But the key thing we found is that the Murray-Darling Basin is the primary basin for providing water birds to the rest of Australia. So while we had feathers collected from all over Australia, we found a very large proportion of them had been grown in the Murray-Darling Basin, which indicates that the birds all over Australia are spending at least some time while they're growing their feathers in the Murray-Darling so you had people collecting feathers? We did. We put out a call to everyone to visit their local wetlands and pick up molted bird feathers that they've just found on the ground or floating in the water and send them in to me. If they knew the species, that was great. But we had huge uptake and it involved school children. They did it as class exercises through to grey nomads travelling around the country sending in feathers as they went. So it was fantastic. And how easy is it for you to identify the birds with the feathers when the people don't know? It depends on the species. Some of them are really, really distinct, particularly some of the ducks have very distinct feathers. 
Others, such as any bird that's white, it's, it's almost impossible to tell. So from that research, being able to determine where a bird has spent some of its time, I was then approached by Taronga Zoo and asked whether or not this same technology could be applied to echidnas and whether or not we could distinguish between animals that had been bred in captivity versus ones that were wild. And the reason behind this was the illegal wildlife trade and the trade of echidnas for pets. Um, under the CITES Convention, which is the convention that monitors, uh, regulates international trade of certain animals, you're allowed to trade some species if they've been captive bred. So there's quite a lot of laundering going on where people claim the animal they have has been captive bred when in fact it's been taken from the wild. And up till now there's been no tool to actually distinguish between it. So we did a pilot study with echidnas and found that we can distinguish, using this same technology I'm using on the feathers, we can distinguish between captive bred and wild caught echidnas. And so now that program has expanded and we're looking at animals in the Philippines and asking the same sorts of questions and using cockatoos and turtles and pangolins. I can follow the feathers. Mm -hmm. I could guess the echidnas would have hair and perhaps spines. So what are you looking at with all these different animals when they don't have feathers? So the common thread with all of them is that they have keratin-based samples. So with the echidnas, they have quills and they're made of keratin exactly the same as the feather. The brilliant thing with the quills is that they're quite long. They may be up to six or seven centimetres long. And unlike feathers, which are being molted every 12 months, the echidnas keep their quills for years and years. So, and they grow continuously, a bit like your fingernail or something like that. So they're continuously adding a record of their diet as they grow. So it's a really long time capsule. Turtles, their shells are made of keratin, same sort of thing. So we can take off a flake, which is called a scoot, and use that. Pangolin scales are also made of keratin. So were you able to tell the difference between the wild and the zoo echidnas? Yes, we were, with 100% accuracy. From the food? From the food, yep, yep. And it all comes down to what they're eating. But the other interesting spin-off from that was that we found that the zoo echidnas were being fed a much higher protein diet than their wild counterparts were eating. So we helped inform the zoo nutritionists and they altered their zoo diets to be more appropriate for their echidnas to match the wild diet. So basically from studying the wetland birds, your research extends to all of zoology. It does. It's, it's expanded hugely into all sorts of questions that we didn't, didn't even consider when we started that we could address with this technology. Do you look at other wetland animals? Not in isolation, more as part of a food web sort of situation and what, what the other animals are is food for the water birds. So from that point of view, that yes. So that includes fish and invertebrates in the water, crustaceans, all sorts of things, but not individually, more as a whole of a food web approach. And your study with keratin, could that be applied to human hair? It has been applied to human hair. There's been quite a few studies done using human hair, horse hair. The use of stable isotopes in diet is not, it's, is not new. The novel thing about my research is using elemental data and asking provenance questions. So where does something come from? And what else have you been looking at with the birds? So with the birds' diet, I started off originally using feathers to look at diet, particularly during a breeding event. Down in 
Southwest of New South Wales is a large wetland area called the Lobidgee Wetlands, which is a very important area for water birds. And in 2010, there was a really large breeding event that went for months and months and months, and we monitored it every two weeks. So I would collect feathers and scats from the nests every two weeks and look at changes in diet during the breeding event. And is diet very closely related to how successful the breeding is? That's a really good question. That's a tricky one with that particular breeding event because that breeding event was very successful anyway. What we find with these water birds is they have very specific water requirements. They nest in inundated vegetation. So they need the water to be a certain depth under their nest so that ground predators can't get to them and the water needs to be there at that certain depth for long enough for them to raise their chicks, so normally three to four months. And if those water conditions change substantially, then they'll abandon their nests. So we found that the water conditions are more important in determining how successful they are and then obviously they need the food resources to support raising the chicks as well. But in this particular event, it was really successful and many of them had second nests and clutches and things like that. Part of their success was the fact that there was a locust plague at the same time early on in the breeding, so they had ample food for the entire breeding season. And I guess the birds must be affected by all the water problems with the Murray-Darling Basin. Mm, They are. Many of our wetlands are impacted by large dams and so the flows to the wetlands have been reduced and the size of floods have been reduced and because these birds have such water-specific requirements, the floods being smaller don't meet these requirements anymore. So yes, their opportunities for breeding have been reduced, which is having an impact on the populations. Is it something that's supposed to be taken into account with all the environmental plans for that area? So yes, The identified outcomes of many environmental watering plans for these wetlands identify water birds. However, to initiate a large water bird breeding event needs a large amount of water. And unfortunately, many of these systems, the capacity to provide that much water in one event is limited. So typically, environmental flows are used to support an event that has been triggered naturally. So, for example, in 2016, when we had large rainfall events we had a number of breeding colonies start up and then environmental flows were used to extend the flood event to make sure that those chicks were reared and got off safely. Over the past decade of my research has been focused predominantly on feathers and it's been a really interesting trajectory of research from just looking at water bird diet to the movements around the country to being involved in helping enforcement of the illegal wildlife trade. So it's been a really interesting journey. On the 17th of August, I'll be giving a talk at the UNSW Bookshop on this research program over the last 10 years. Well, Kate Brandis, thank you very much. No, my pleasure. Thank you. That was Dr Kate Brandis from the Centre for Ecosystem Science at the University of New South Wales with Tales Told by Feathers and Quills. And now from the 2001 Cassette Archives... Here's the next episode of Gina Sartore's Daughter of Time. Hello and welcome to the Daughter of Time, returning after a long holiday in the Seychelles. 
Well, I was chatting with my little radio colleague Ian, he of the Tell a Joke to Gina when she's about to start a live read fame the other day. And don't ask me how we got onto this topic. We started talking about the derivation of the term computer bug. I had a vague recollection of a story that went something like this. The term computer bug was coined by Grace Hopper in the mid-40s after a moth flew through an open window into one of the relays of an early computer, temporarily shutting the system down. Hopper pasted the moth into the maintenance logbook with the caption, Bug. Alas, dear listener, Ian disillusioned me by pointing out that the term bug, meaning some kind of failure or glitch, had been in use for some years, particularly by engineers and aviators, a more corporeal form of gremlin, I guess. However, I felt that this was the sort of story that really should be true, so I had a bit of a dig around. Now, it's true, bugs had been around for a while, and had even been used by very early computer scientists before Hopper. Still, she was the first person to extend the term to include software rather than hardware problems, and also coined debugging, the removal of such errors. More importantly, the moth in the logbook exists, and I've seen a photo of it. So there. So, what was a woman doing hanging around the blokey halls of early computer science? I mean, Ada Lovelace aside, weren't they all pipe-smoking boffins with leather patches on their tweed jackets? Well, I suppose that doesn't necessarily exclude women, but still. Grace Murray Hopper was born in New York City in 1906. She was fortunate in her choice of family. Her mother had studied geometry privately, mathematics being considered inappropriate for a woman at that time, and her father, an insurance sales broker, encouraged Grace to pursue higher education and to live outside traditional feminine roles. He also kept her supplied with materials on which to exercise her curiosity. One of my sources relates that by the time she was seven, she was dismantling alarm clocks in an attempt to find out how they worked. The source doesn't say if she succeeded, although she did go through about seven, or if she got them back together again. Hopper graduated from Vassar with a degree in maths and physics in 1928. In 1930, at the age of 23, she received a master's in maths from Yale, then in 1934 a PhD. And from 1931 to 43, she was a maths instructor and then associate professor at Vassar. In December of 1943, Hopper joined the Navy. Though she was over the age limit at 34 and under the weight limit at 47 kilos. Also, her position as a maths professor was declared crucial to the war effort, so she wasn't really supposed to enlist at all. This didn't stop her, though, from graduating first in her class in the Midshipman's School for Women. Her first Navy assignment was at the Bureau of Ordnance Computation at Harvard, where she worked on the Mark I, the world's first large-scale digital computer, which was used to calculate aiming angles for naval guns in various conditions. When I say large-scale, Hopper describes it, it was 51 feet long, 8 feet high and 8 feet deep, and it had 72 words of storage and could perform three editions per second. At 16 metres by about 2.5 by 2.5, that's not quite in the same league as the notebook I wrote this on, but it's still faster than I can do edition. Fortunately for me and people like me, Hopper helped to develop, as she put it, the machine that assisted the power of the brain rather than muscle. 
After the war, though no longer in active service, Hopper continued working with computers at Harvard. Gradually she became more involved with software rather than hardware and was in fact one of the major figures in the development of software. Early computers, as well as filling rooms, performed their calculations physically. That is of course still true in a way, it's all just electrons after all, but in those days to change the calculation you had to swap a few leads around, set relays and whack in some more vacuum tubes. Now we leave the hardware alone unless it's been really, really irritating, and write logical problems which run on it. Hopper was a major figure in the development of both the idea and the actuality of software, and in 1953 she developed the first compiler, which by translating words into machine language meant that programming became less a matter of physical manipulation and more a matter of logic. In fact, you could say she, she invented programming, in her words, because she was lazy and hoped that the programmer might return to being a mathematician. Hopper's work on compilers and on making machines understand ordinary language instructions led ultimately to the development of the business language COBOL. Her work also foreshadowed or embodied enormous numbers of developments that are still the very bones of computing. Subroutines, formula translation, relative addressing, the linking loader, code optimization and symbolic manipulation. At the time of her death, she was still an active consultant for the computer company Digital. Grace Hopper was also a, a gifted teacher from the sounds of it, who perhaps because of her early work could always ground the esoteric in the concrete. To illustrate the idea of code efficiency, for example, Hopper would hand out lengths of wire about 30 centimetres long to her students. These were their nanoseconds, as that was the length of wire traversed by an electron in a nanosecond, and they weren't to waste them. For extra emphasis, she herself would brandish an entire microsecond, a coil of wire 1,000 feet that's 300 metres long. Hopper died in 1992, having attained the rank of Admiral. But I think my favourite of all her awards was the one she received in 1969, the inaugural award from the Data Processing Management Association, the Computer Sciences Man of the Year. That was Gina Satore in 2001 with Daughter of Time. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Listen next week for an interview with the Australian space entrepreneurs of Alula. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia, to 28 stations on the community radio network, including... 
2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, 2XXFM in Canberra, and my local station, 2RDJ in Burwood, New South Wales. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.